I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Uh, It's good to see you again, Ken. You know, it's hard to believe, but this is our 20th episode together. That's quite amazing. Yeah, look, I just I just realised that too, and we've really only just touched the surface so far. Last week, we, we started working our way through your nine-step investment formula in a more systematic way, and I think we explored step two, which is where you create projected cash flows for your chosen properties. Anyway, step three involves making sure you sleep soundly at night, but perhaps you care to expand on that a little for us? Actually, Ken, I do mention this during the introduction to the mentor program. And obviously, that program goes far deeper into this aspect of the investment formula than we're actually able to do during today's podcast. But let me perhaps give a quick overview of how it actually works. If you think about the traditional approach to buying commercial property, it it basically follows the following process. After you've found the property, you then finalise purchase of the property and then you would go to your bank or your finance source and you would agree with them an indicative basis for the loan. It may not be the final terms and conditions, but it would effectively give you an indication. It may be that you do that before you purchase. It's not a commitment, but at least you have a a feel for what their lending basis is. Then once you've bought the property and and you go to them with a contract, they instruct, that's the lender instructs a valuer to undertake a formal valuation and come back to them. Once they have that, they're then in a position to finalise the loan terms, the, the, the actual uh, amount that's being lent, the period and so forth, based on the, the valuation. And from there, assuming everything is going fine, you would simply proceed on to settle the property and everything would be fine. Now, what was interesting, and this goes back to the probably the early 90s when I, I made the change from helping people sell property to then acting for the buyer in the acquisition process. And I thought I really ought fully understand the nine-step formula, which which wasn't that at the time, but just the process of acquiring property. And as I carefully dissected the entire acquisition process, I found that there were these nine steps. And in the process of doing that, I also discovered there were quite a number of shortcomings in the process. That's the traditional process of acquiring property. And what's really sad is that it would appear that investors over the years have simply been prepared to either accept or just put up with these flaws or shortcomings and inconveniences rather than actually address them and find a solution for them. In other words, they just haven't complained enough for anyone to really do anything about them. So maybe it's worthwhile just perhaps flagging two or three of these these shortcomings. The first one, for example, is that the valuer, 
that the lender appoints may not, in fact, confirm the contract price that you've agreed to. Now, with residential properties, it's not so much an issue, generally, because most properties, residential properties, uh, if they're private sale, there's a lot of similar properties and therefore there's enough evidence and you're unlikely, you know pretty much how much it's worth. And if you go to auction, most finance sources are comfortable that, you know, if it's sold at auction, it's a fair way to buy the property, you haven't paid too much, therefore they accept that as the as the, the figure. So invariably the valuer will come in at the contract price. But that's not the case with commercial property because valuers have been caught, particularly with the property crash in 89, where commercial property values plummeted between 40 and 50% when the crash came. So they these valuers have been happily valuing these properties at high figures related to what was being paid for them in the top of the boom, only to be caught out. So nowadays, the commercial valuers are very conservative. So it won't always follow that what you actually negotiate is the price, even if you think it's a good price, that the valuer will actually confirm that. So that's number one. Number two, the impediment that you find, is that as soon as you lock into a single lender, you are effectively surrendering control of the financial arrangements from there on. Because you are saying to them, I'm with you, you organise everything, and you just proceed down that path. Now, that brings us probably to the third shortcoming. That is that if, if something does go awry between agreeing with to, to run with that financier and fulfilling all the financial discussions and arrangements and agreeing the contracts and the actual settlement date, as I said, if something goes wrong, particularly as you're three or four weeks out from settlement, you have no option but to reluctantly agree to the lender's modified term. And invariably, those will be slanted their way. Now, by way of example, what can often happen when the banks, and they know they've got the upper hand, they'll come back to you three, four weeks out from settlement and say, look, I've just had a memo from the credit committee and they're a little concerned at the way things are in the economy at the moment and they have asked us to get some added security. Now, they may turn around and say, look, we want to have a um, a lien over your business or maybe uh, have some security with you. Just lodge your, the title of your home with us. We won't make it a formal mortgage, but we just want want to have that title so that we have the comfort of, of knowing and our credit committee's happy. So it's not... It's certainly not your way, but at that point, you really can't do anything because they've organised everything, they've been in control, and, and what do you do three, two, three weeks out from settlement? You've got to rush around, get another valuation, go to someone cap in hand. So even the next source of finance is going to look at you a bit askance and start to wonder what, in fact, is going on. Why is it that you've suddenly had to come to us? So again they will be in the box seat as far as, as organising any finances by way of a substitute. So you're not in a strong position, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So you can see by resolving these issues, it will allow you to sleep soundly. And that's, that's why they 
called it that step step number three in the process is is you you just need to have a a process and as I said this is part of what I did back in the in the early 90s when I just pulled the whole acquisition process apart and just sat down and said look you know starting with a blank page ideally what would we like to have happen and and having scoped the the end outcome as far as organizing finance I then worked backwards to rearrange the pieces the events that normally take place and put them in a more constructive and, and productive order so that my clients weren't being held to ransom by the, the banks. Now, when it comes to residential property, depending what the market is, but more often than not, you are able to buy a property subject to finance. Obviously, if you're trying to negotiate a very sharp deal, the vendors won't agree to that. But if if you will more or less pay the price thereafter, quite often they'll allow you to buy it subject to finance for, let's say, 14 days. And getting residential finance, as I said, is not a, a big issue. So, so that's not a problem. But that's not the case with commercial property. You see, the, the vendors are not interested in taking the property off the market. And they know getting finance for a commercial property is a lot more complicated than a residential property. So the thing you need to realise, that the, the, the mental change you have to, to bring to play here is that you don't actually have to have it subject to finance. What you need to know is the figure which a valuer would be prepared to place on the property after you've bought it. So in other words, if you know that before you've bought it, that gives you the comfort of knowing that you haven't paid too much when you finally get to the the signing of the contract. And this is where it, it's, a, it's a simple change, but you've got to think of it in that manner because that's all you really need to know. It's the valuer that holds the key. And so therefore, if you're able to line up a valuer, which is what I do with my clients, who will tell us in advance the figure up to which he's prepared to support, then there are no surprises when it comes to going to a finance source because you already know what your loan-to-value ratio is. You don't have the surprise. Now, and it has been the case that some of my clients have said, look, we really want that property for whatever reason and they have been prepared to pay a higher figure. They do that with the knowledge that they will have to chip in some more equity because the valuer will not necessarily support that higher figure. Now, if you purchase the property for less than the figure that the value would be prepared to support. That doesn't mean he's going to value it at the higher figure. He will never value it at higher than the contract price. But my concern is, and what's happened over the years I've found, is that valuers will value it at less than the contract price. And that's where your problem really starts. Can anyone set up such an arrangement? Well, yes, Ken. The short answer, obviously, is yes, anyone can. But you've got to understand what you're seeking. You're asking a valuer to advise you, in his professional opinion, what would be the figure up to which he was prepared to support. And so to get him to do that, you either need to be a professional investor or at least a regular purchaser of commercial property. Because otherwise, the valuer will charge you a sizable fee for that advice, and it then becomes a very expensive exercise. Now, he won't necessarily charge you a full valuation fee, 
because it's he's not writing a full report. But he has to put his professional credibility on the line and there is professional indemnity insurance issues that he's got to address. So unless you already have a relationship with the valuer and are regularly working with him, and the only reason they provide it for me is, and they'll do that then at no charge, is because of the amount of business that I bring to them through my clients. So they know it's an ongoing relationship. So they're prepared to give me this off-the-record advice, if you like, with the knowledge that down the line they're going to get the business and therefore for them it's not a really an exposure issue because they have a relationship with me. They know that I'm not about to go out and use that advice uh, in a wayward fashion. And really the, the same benefit will be available and, and that's part and parcel of this mentor program that that the valuer is available and will, the, the mentor people in the program will have access through me to that particular valuer. But otherwise, as I said, you have to be either a professional or someone that is buying a lot of property where you build that relationship yourself with the valuer so that he knows or she knows that you are not just sucking their brains and that they're not going to be left high and dry or exposed and ultimately because of the relationship they know that they will get ongoing business as a result of the acquisition activities that you undertake. So as I said the answer is clearly yes but there is the proviso that you you, you will need to, to do it and as I said that's probably what I bring to the table with my clients and and hopefully once we get the mentor program up and running it'll be available to those uh, people as well. Apart from the obvious advantage of knowing you are not paying too much does your strategy provide any other benefits? As you gather the the upfront benefit lies in securing the property or knowing you've secured the property at the right price because you haven't exceeded the figure that the value has provided to you. But what happens next is what allows you to have several lenders actively competing for your business because that's the secret. What you don't want to do is to lock into just one lender. Now, sure, having a finance broker enables you to have a choice, but the last thing you want to do is to make that choice and then cut off all your other choices or access to the other choices if something goes wrong with your first choice because invariably the commercial terms of the deal are not going to be that great sometimes there are they are different and that comes about because finance broker will know who at that very point in time is offering the best deal because for whatever reason they might want to balance their loan book they've got too much residential or car financing or something and they want more commercial property therefore for a short period they'll drop their rate a quarter percent or or 0.2% or whatever it is and you can find them and they stand out but even so you need to be able to be in a position to if something doesn't go right at the very towards the very end to be able to quickly swap to the other lenders that that may have offered something that's almost equally as attractive so what's important is that that you retain control over the financial process all the way through to ensure that there are no nasty surprises at the end. But we're probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, Ken, but because it's really step six is in the in the process, which I'm sure we'll cover in a 
in a few weeks of how to lock in your loan terms. And as I said, this was all part and parcel when I pulled it all apart to realise that you've actually got to split this into two parts and not look at it as just one single aspect of what you're doing. So, and what this will provide you with is is effectively the ability for you to wrest back the control of the entire negotiations with your lenders. And that may happen, as I said, through a finance broker, but it just gives you a sinking feeling sometimes when, when you feel that you are at the behest of your lender and you have to jump as high as they say without question. And I've just tried to turn the tables around so that apart from sleeping at night knowing you've paid the right price, you also know you're not going to have these unsavoury and unforeseen surprises emerge between the purchase and the settlement through no fault of your own, simply because you surrendered control to your source of finance. Sounds good. I I like it. Now, any further last-minute tips before we finish today? Maybe today's tip, let's keep it in in the finance arena. Uh, Look, I, I mentioned several times the idea of using a finance broker, and the obvious advantages are that they will have the ability to scour the market and have at their fingertips the very best deals based on your personal circumstances so that it's not a a bank trying to shoehorn you into one of their products that suits them. The finance broker analyzes your personal needs, your family background, your aspirations, where you're trying to head as far as you're building your portfolio looks at the short term and the long term and then will find an appropriate source of finance for you that will best fit your needs. So that's number one. Number two, when the documentation arrives, in the same way as as I have, I'm not a lawyer, but when I see a contract or a lease, I can quickly scan through that to see if there is anything untoward or out of the ordinary or distasteful as far as my clients are concerned. Now, if there may be one or two clauses I'm uncomfortable with, I might then say to my client, have your lawyer have a look at these two and just to satisfy you that they're okay and if not, what amendments we need. Whereas most people, if you're dealing directly with a bank yourself or a finance source, you get the documentation, you then take it to your solicitor. Now, it's not that I want to do a solicitor out of, out of a job, but that's a very expensive way to have the documentation analysed because they will go through clause by clause, give you a complete summary and so forth, and not necessarily knowing your personal expectations as far as the portfolio and its funding down the track, they may not pick up some nuances in some of the clauses as to how they will affect you long term, whereas the broker, as I do with leases and properties, I look at the documentation as to how they are going to affect my clients now and down the track and as to whether there's there's issues that are going to arise potentially so that I can, from a practical point of view, flag those and then we resolve those specific issues if that's necessary using your solicitor. So I, I think not only from a source of finance but a simplification and a practical advice to you of of what the documentation means, you'll find your finance broker just puts you way ahead and and just will save you both certainly money, but I think a lot of time 
in giving you a very quick inter practical interpretation of the documentation when it arrives rather than you either having to pour over it or spend money having your solicitor give you the advice which will probably be no better than what the finance broker will have given you anyway. Okay then, let's call it a day and I'll see you next week. Yes, Ken, I, I plan to be here. <laughs>